Today we are looking at the crucifixion of Christ, and we're going to focus on what was done to Jesus and how that reveals and really highlights what he did for us. But right off the bat, before we read God's word, I want to address two questions. And the first question is, why do people do such crazy, insane things? Mob mentality, basically. Why does that happen? Uh, People do all kinds of crazy things when mobs are involved. Uh, Just last Wednesday, after the Red Sox won the World Series, people were flipping over occupied cars in Boston. Riots break out for all sorts of reasons. Just today, you say, wait, the day's not that old yet. Well, on the other side of the world, it's been going on for longer than it has here, and two riots in English prisons and one in a Saudi prison. Just today. We all remember the 1992 L.A. riots. That was crazy. Vastly different situations, vastly different outcomes, but not so unlike the people whipped into a frenzy and calling for Jesus' death and carrying it out some 2,000 years ago. What is it that makes people basically go insane, lose their minds and all sorts of normalcy. And I think we know the reason all too well. It is sin indwelling in us that causes it. Our sin-sick souls are dead. They are putrefied and totally unable to do anything of value unless God intervenes. Fear and hatred basically burst out like refuse from a festering wound and only Jesus Christ is able to arrest the cause and effects of indwelling sin so why do people do such crazy things because of sin and only Jesus is the answer now the second question I want to ask is how should we approach the subject of the crucifixion I mean I bet many of you are wearing crosses right now, and they're probably not ugly. They're probably fashioned out of gold or diamonds and made into some beautiful jewelry. We've got a big cross hanging right up here on the wall. We have crosses everywhere. We're flooded in our society with crosses. But it is so easy to become desensitized to the message of the cross. Because it's become so common to us. We would read the crucifixion accounts in all the Gospels and then say, Pass the peas, please. It's just too common for us. And we think of crosses in terms of jewelry and what you put up on the wall. And we've got a problem. How are we to look subject to the crucifixion? R. Kent Hughes said that we are so used to the cross in our society that people would be more shocked at seeing a crucified dog than a man and that people would probably have more sympathy for the dog the sin that separates us from God the ugliness that ensued as things sped up to their foreordained conclusion at the cross it's a big study in contrast really It's why I've called this sermon, The Crucifixion of Christ, a providential atrocity. The crucifixion of Christ was an atrocious event 
that was providentially planned by God. Kind of like a farmer who who burns his own fields down. And you say, wow, look at all the smoke. There's a big fire. Oh, no. And he's doing it for a good reason because he wants to plant new crops. But it's easy to become callous to the message of the cross. And so let us not become callous today or insensitive to the message of the cross. But also, let us not become morbidly, morbidly interested in all these minute details that you will hear. Because the cross points to something big, and it's not what happened to Jesus, but what he did for us. So we must view the cross in light of what Christ has done. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. I want to ask you to stand with me as I read God's Word. We'll read verses 27 through 44. The reading of God's Word, the most perfect moment of the worship service. Really the only perfect moment because the Word of God is perfect. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. You trust in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word that we have read and we believe it is completely true. It is authoritative. It is binding upon our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that it is not the word of man. It is your word and it is from you and it is sustained by you and it is carried out by you and you lord want to do something in our lives as a result of being exposed to your word so lord we ask that you would have your way with us today we pray in christ's name 
Amen. Please be seated. So I want you to focus with me today upon what they did to Jesus at the cross and what Jesus did for us. What they did to Jesus. The first thing I want to point out isn't in the passage I just read. It's in the verse right before it. Verse 26. First of all, they messed him up really bad. Before he ever went to the cross, he, his, his features could not even be recognized he was that messed up. He suffered greatly in the garden. We know that he was sweating drops of blood. He was struck first in Caiaphas's presence. He was then struck by guards. And then he was scourged under Pilate. A scourge was a whip. So if you are scourged, you have a beating. It's also called flogging. It was administered with that whip or with that rod. And it was usually on your back. It was, they hit you on your back. It was a common method of punishing criminals and preserving discipline in those days. The Roman flogging, the word here is fragello. Mentioned here is quite different than the kind of flogging Jews would get or give. It comes from a borrowed Latin word used to designate the Roman uh, verberatio. It's a horrible form of flogging. Roman law required that if you were going to get this beating, you would already be sentenced to death. This was the beating you got before you got executed. Now, if you were flogged in the Jewish synagogue, they could only give you 40 lashes, limited to 40 lashes by the law, Deuteronomy 25, verse 3. But Roman flogging had absolutely no restrictions attached. They could do anything they wanted to you. Often, this flogging would result in death. When the condemned man, by the way, women were not flogged, When the condemned man was tied to a post, he was flogged with that cruel flagellum. It was a leather strap interwoven with pieces of bone and metal that cut through your skin, left the skin hanging in shreds. The repeated flaying often left the bones and intestines showing. The person was not infrequently near the point of death when they were taken to be executed. Wasn't much left. That's why scourging or flogging was nicknamed the halfway death. The halfway death. Jesus' features at this point would not have been recognized. And it would be at this point that Pilate announced to the people the words, Ecce homo, in Latin, behold the man. John 19 verse 5, behold the man, here is your king. Look at him. Psalm 2, verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Before Jesus went to the cross, they messed him up as much as possible, to the beyond recognition. The next thing I'll point out to you is seen in verses 27 through 31. They, they mock him by dressing him up. They dressed him up. It was a battalion of soldiers, 600 soldiers. The governor's soldiers plus this battalion and what they were doing is making fun of Jesus. 
Verse 28, they put a scarlet robe on him and then a crown of thorns, pushed it on his head. You ever got stuck by a thorn? It happened to me when I was a little kid. It hurt. Rosebush. I learned a lesson that day. You don't, hit, you don't touch the rosebush. Don't touch the thorn at least. So we think of these little rosebush thorns and sometimes rosebush thorns are kind of big. But the kind of thorns they would have used would have grown on bramble bushes that were two to three inch long thorns. They could do some real damage. By the way, thorns were the fruits of the curse of sin. Here's Christ, the second Adam, bearing this crown of thorns and in the process of going to the cross, removing the curse. They put a reed in his right hand. I always picture like a piece of straw or something. This was a stick that they would continually beat him over the head with that would cause welts. It was a mock scepter. They were mocking him as king. You might not be aware of is that Roman soldiers in those days in Jerusalem were known to play a very cruel game with condemned criminals. The prisoner was dressed up as a king and used as a game piece. On a, basically a human game piece on a, like a board game that they would draw out on the ground. There was a place in the Via Della Rosso, the way of the cross, where Jesus walked to the cross, where they found a, a game actually drawn out that would have been used in such a situation. With each roll of the dice, the prisoner, the king, was moved around the game board that's etched on the floor. And it was all for the entertainment, the warped, twisted entertainment of the troops. While they were playing this game, they would hurl verbal and physical abuse at this mock king. They beat him over and over again on his head with this staff, and they then spit on him. Very degrading thing to do to a person. And then they gambled for his clothes. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen says, For my clothing they cast lots. They drew through dice for his clothes. And then they took off the pretend clothes, sent him out to be crucified. Verses 32 to 44, what you see they did to him is they, they put him on the cross. They hung him up on the cross. And I think in, in, our, in, in the day in which we live where crosses are plentiful and crosses are on buildings and around necks, we don't fully understand what really happened. We should realize the utter degradation and the anguish of such a death that Jesus went through. There's no modern punishment that would carry the same sort of humiliation that crucifixion did. That's why we need to go back some 2,000 years and enter into the feelings of the Jews and the Romans if we want to view it in its its genuine aspect. They put Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. They would have seen many, many crucifixions. If you grew up in that time, if you lived in that time, you would have seen them. They would be commonplace. A crucifixion procession would be as commonplace as a funeral procession that we might see in midday. They put a quadrennium of soldiers, four soldiers around Jesus, and then began putting the patibulum over his shoulders, the cross beam of the cross, which would have weighed 30 to 40 pounds. 
And he was then to walk to the place of execution. Kind of pictured Isaac, the Old Testament, walking up the mountain to Moriah with the wood for sacrifice. Here is Jesus walking up the mountain to be sacrificed. It must have been that the loss of blood and the, the excruciating pain and the whole ordeal had so drained Jesus that he was not able to carry his own cross the rest of the way. And so verse 32 says that they forced a man named Simon of Cyrene. And Cyrene was in North Africa. Presumably he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, a Jewish man. And they forced him to carry this patibulum, this, this cross beam of the cross. Mark 15 says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. They're both named in the book of Acts and Romans. And so one might wonder what, what happened in this family, what changed in their hearts, because it looks like they became followers of Christ. They took him and made him carry the cross. Now, I can just picture a children's book that's like Simon of Cyrene, who had the privilege of carrying the cross. This was not a privilege. The Romans could make you do anything they wanted you to do. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, if they force you to go one mile, one mile, go with them too. This was a, a degrading thing to have happened to him, but he was forced into it. He got an up close and personal view of the crucifixion. Now they led Jesus to Golgotha, that's Hebrew for place of the skull. Sometimes you hear of a church named Golgotha. Not very often. I mean, who wants to name their church, you know, Skull Church? So we'll say, hey, let's call it Calvary instead. You know what that means? Skull. That's Latin for skull. Skull Chapel. Things like that. Skull Church. They go to Golgotha, Calvary in Latin. Three primary reasons have been proposed for the name of Golgotha. One, it was a place of execution. People died there. The skull is the symbol of death. Two, it was an area known to have a number of tombs. What do you find in tombs? Skulls. And three, the site in some way resembled a skull. What we know is that Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem to be killed. Golgotha was outside the city gates. Hebrews 13 tells us that he, Jesus, suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people through his blood. Then they offered him, verse 33, they offered him a mixture of wine and what is called gall. That is a something bitter to make the wine taste bad. They crucified him. They gave him this, this wine and presumably some people think, a lot of people think it's to dull the pain because in those days there were ladies in Jerusalem that were godly and kind and merciful and they wanted those getting crucified to, to kind of have the pain dulled for them. So they would actually put wine with frankincense and it would be a sort of narcotic element that would cause the person to kind of go into a bit of a stupor. 
So the, the most popular way of seeing this is Jesus didn't want anything dulling his senses, and so he didn't take that narcotic type thing to dull the pain. That's one way to look at it. You can also look at it this way. It was more cruel of the soldiers because it didn't say the women gave him this. It said the soldiers gave it to him. And it was wine mixed with gall. And, and gall describes the taste. It was a very bad taste. Mark says it was myrrh, which describes the content. Gall describes the taste. But think of it this way. If it was to alleviate the pain, Jesus would have known what was in it and said no to begin with. He tasted it. Either way, he took the full brunt of our sins and all the pain on himself on the cross. But I like the view that this was not merciful, but more treacherous on the part of the soldiers to make it worse on him. It was like David says in Psalm 69, I looked for someone to comfort me and there was no one to comfort me. Jesus looked for sympathy and found none. They divided his garments by casting lots. But here is Jesus ministering to thieves. Here is Jesus giving those seven great last words. Here is Jesus caring for his mother. It's interesting that verse 35 simply says when they had crucified him. All the gospel writers basically say that he got crucified. They didn't go into all the details, and there's probably a few reasons for that. Number one, they knew the details. They knew what had happened. But number two, the cross can stand for itself. You don't need all the gory details. And by the way, any detail I'll give you today doesn't give you all the gory details. Any way we could describe it, it was worse. Here we are, people living in, in, uh, in America in 2013, and we're trying to explain what happened a long, long time ago, and how do we find out from, from history books, from backgrounds that were written at the same time? We've got to go back because we don't know it now. But they crucified him. Another reason I think that they didn't go into all the details is because the point was he was dying for the sins of the world. The point of the cross is redemption. The point of the cross is reconciliation. They knew all about it. The patibulum carried on the shoulders. There are atrocious details, by the way. Once you got there, they would, they would jam the patibulum on the crux simplex, which was the up and down part of the cross. The death that Jesus died was the lowest possible death you could die. It was vile. It was so vile that Gentiles wouldn't even say the name crucifixion. There was an actor, a Roman actor, that mimicked and offended by, by mocking crucifixion. And the writer said that he wished that that man would be nailed to a cross for doing that. They wouldn't even talk about the cross. Deuteronomy 21-23 says, He who hangs on a tree is cursed. It's interesting in Philippians chapter 2. It says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But then it says, even death on a cross. The worst kind of death. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says it was it's the scandal of the cross. He went through limitless pain. Back in the 80s, there was a study done, an assessment done that described the crucifixion. It was the most complete medical assessment ever done on it. The patibulum was hoisted to the crossbeam, the crux simplex, it was hoisted in the air, probably not as tall as we think of it or as depicted in art. 
We think of these crosses like way up there, right? It was probably much closer to the ground because some writers in those days said that wild beasts would tear at the people that were dying on the crosses. Feet would be put in place. There would be a labored up and down breathing over and over and over again. Asphyxiation would be happening. Even drowning because in your own uh, fluids you'd be drowning. The hands would be hanging limp. The tendons would be stretched like piano wire or violin strings. Insects would be attacking. There would be respiratory torture. There would be blood and bone and flies and the stench of death because this death was as excruciating as can be. You didn't always die right away after crucifixion. Tortured sometimes lived for days in agony before dying. So until then, verse 36 tells us that the guard had to keep watch over the prisoners. Verse 37 says they placed the words king of the Jews over his head. It was very common in those days that they would put the charge against you. They would put the the case against you, the reason you were getting killed above your head. Actually, many times they would crucify people and put the charge below their feet. In Jesus' case, it looks like they were trying to um, ostracize the Jews even more and put it above his head and say, look, this is your king and this is the only king you're going to get. It's the only king you're ever going to have. By the way, putting the charge above the head or on the cross was a very effective warning. Golgotha was near the crossroads, near a major thoroughfare. Everyone who was passing by would see it and go, I don't want that to happen to me. And it was another way for Rome to insult the Jews. Again, this is what you have as a king. It was a final mockery. It was a joke to them, but no one's laughing. All four gospel writers give a, a, a different variation of the, of the title that was written on this, on this card up there. It would have been in white or uh, red letters and black letters. And it would say this, in Mark, the king of the Jews, quite simply, that's all it says. In Luke, he says, the king of the Jews, this. This is king of the Jews. Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And John says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In every instance, there is a strong, demonstrative, indicative. And what's happening, especially in Matthew, the words this is, turns the accusation into a proclamation. Pilate didn't realize he was preaching the gospel. He made the indictment into a confession. It's like a sermon. This is Jesus, the king. You need to see what happened in, in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 19. During the crucifixion, when Pilate wrote this inscription, and he put it on the cross, many of the Jews that read the inscription didn't like what Pilate wrote. He didn't like Pilate's choice of words. Now, Pilate wrote it in three languages common in that day. So everyone could understand Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now the chief priests come to Pilate and say, don't write the king of the Jews. Write this instead. This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And I love Pilate's answer. By the way, the Jews tried over and over again to get Pilate to change that 
that sign. It's in the imperfect tense. It means they did it again and again and again. You've got to change it. You've got to change it. You've got to change it. But what Pilate's answer is in the perfect tense. He says, what I have written, basically, is going to stand forever. He didn't realize he was preaching the gospel. Jesus is king forever. Verse 38 tells us that they crucified him between two thieves. Shades of Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Enemies were shaming him. He was fulfilling scripture. And then you get to verses 39 through 44, and you've got everybody taking their shot at Jesus while he's up on the cross. They mock his claim to be able to rebuild the temple in three days. They say, hey, he can't even save himself. They unknowingly quote Psalm 22, 8, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. And then there's the miracle that he did not do. In fact, the miracle that Jesus did not do was probably among his greatest. They told him, come down from the cross. He very well could have, but he didn't. He didn't do that miracle. And in not doing that miracle, he brought about the greatest miracle of the redemption, of reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. So the miracle he did not do was one of his greatest miracles. Think about it. Verse 43, they say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. That's Psalm 22, 8. They said, hey, he said, I'm the son of God. See, they were listening to what Jesus said. They remembered what Jesus said, but they did it hatefully. They remembered hatefully what Jesus had said. They mocked his kinship. They didn't acknowledge his kingship. They killed him as a common criminal and mocked him. Everybody mocked him. It brings us back to the mob mentality, really. It's, you know, Group think, popular opinion, taking polls, and majority rule. What the Bible tells us is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've heard stories of people jeering a man on a ledge who's about to jump and say, go ahead and do it. This scene was vile, it was degrading, it was atrocious. Matthew Henry said, it is an insatiable rage indeed which will not be satisfied with death, but will mock even the dying. There's an insatiable rage indeed that will not be satisfied with death, but will mock even the dying. But what we must remember is that even in this situation, this death was providentially planned, was orchestrated, was sovereignly carried out by God. So in answer to the question, what difference should the crucifixion make in my life? Our answer would be that this reveals, the crucifixion reveals God's character in startling ways that that bolsters your sagging faith, that lifts you up, that refreshes your weary soul, to know the truth. So you got some big God ideas embedded in this passage. The first one I will point out is that you see God's love in the crucifixion. You see God's love in the crucifixion. If you're an unbeliever today, if you're not a follower of Christ, this should be your introduction to the, to the love of God, the crucifixion, the death of Christ. If you're a believer, this should be your continuation in the doctrines of grace. See, the crucifixion reveals Jesus as our loving God. The crucifixion is a revelation of his love. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God, who needs nothing 
loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseen, or should we say seen, there are no tenses in God, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. And then he says, if I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This, Lewis says, is a diagram of love itself, the inventor of all loves. Jesus on the cross reveals God's love for you in the most dramatic way, in the clearest way, in the best possible way in the whole universe. The cross is the place that we need to lay down our pride and our supposed sophistication and our emotional detachment and our indifference because the cross reveals the heart of God. Jesus loves you. Amazing love, how... How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Embrace that with all your heart, with all your mind. The most amazing display of love in the entire history of the universe. So we can say with Paul, when we come to faith in Christ, that I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We agree with 1 John 4.10 and in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the love of God seen in the cross most clearly. We also see God's grace. The crucifixion reveals Jesus as our gracious Lord and King. 1 Peter chapter 2. We read words of kind of basically what to do when you're suffering. In verse 19. This is a a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter employs some Old Testament sacrificial language to play up the the redemptive significance of Jesus' death. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds 
you have been healed. Wounds are, are, are getting beaten till you bleed. That's what that signifies. A beating till you bleed. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. This gracious Lord, this, this gracious King Jesus, they called him, they taunted him, King of Israel. They were taunting him with the truth. You see such generous mercy at the cross. You see such overwhelming grace at the cross. And you see that inscription that Pilate put down when he didn't even realize he was preaching a sermon. It says, Jesus, King of the Jews, what I have written, I have written. It's going to stand forever. This Jesus is going to be the returning king, the one that we will crown with many crowns, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Serve him. Serve him. Sovereign Lord and King. He's ruling from the cross. Can you see him? He is ruling from the cross. We will hail him as our matchless king through all eternity. Lastly, I want you to see not only the love of God and the grace of God, but also the sufficiency of the work of Christ. That he is being revealed at the cross in the crucifixion as our all-sufficient savior. They're mocking who he is and what he did. The Savior, they're, they're trying to get him to come down from the cross. It was the very thing that could bring them life. It was him staying on the cross. Just like the temptation in the wilderness. Satan's like, if you are the Son of God, do this or that. Well, if you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. No, he said, I'm the Son of God, so I will stay on this cross. Biggest thing Jesus didn't do is go off the cross. The very thing that could bring them life, his death, they were in the most twisted way trying to get him not to do. What does that reflect of our sinful state, of our depraved human condition? Irrational words coming from blind, blind people. Addicts doing things that make no sense. You got an addiction? You take your addiction to the cross. They were bringing him twisted wine and gambling at the foot of the cross. There's all sorts of addictions in the world. The place to bring your addictions is at the foot of the cross where Jesus can heal you. Jesus' crucifixion displays His love and grace and sufficiency so that we would trust in Him. They taunted Him with these words. You trust in God. It's the very thing He wants us to do. The very thing He did and the very thing He wants us to do. By the way, lest we think ourselves better in any way, we say, well, look what they did to him on the cross. What they did, we did. What they did, I did. What they did, you did. We need to have our eyes opened. You know the, the, you know the hardest person it is to assess, to give an um, evaluation to? Yourself. We are so often blind or we'll give ourselves way much credit, way too much credit. You need honest friends. You need trustworthy uh, tools like the Word of God to tell you the truth about yourself. By the way, you do anything in an attitude of superiority, that's not from Jesus. It's not from God. You look down upon me. Oh, look what they did. Oh, look how bad they are. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. It's not from Jesus. It's not Christ-like. It's not biblical. 
They were taunting Jesus. Well, he can't save himself. He's the king. Let me, um, let me say this. They dressed Jesus up and mocked him. When you come to faith in Christ, he dresses you up and honors you. Brings you in. The robe and a ring and a kiss brings you in to his presence without fear. But let me tell you this, if, if you picture those thieves on the cross with Jesus, both those men were wagging their heads at Jesus and reviling. Pete did so well last week, explained to us this idea of what was going on and the guy that changed his mind. You can look at those two, two thieves on the cross and say, you know what, they had sin in them. You ever, you ever uh, run a red light? You ever speed or disobey your parents or do anything wrong? Well, you, it's because you have sin in you. It's like those thieves on the cross. They were up there because they were guilty and they were, had sin in them. But have you ever got away with something? You ran a red light, you went too fast, you disobeyed, but no one seemed to know and you didn't get caught? See, when you get caught, your sin's on you. Not just in you, it's on you. So in those two guys on the cross, their sin was in them and their sin was on them. And when that one thief said, remember me, when you come into your, into your kingdom, he was expressing true belief in Christ, then his sin was transferred over to Jesus, no longer on him. So let me ask you a question. Where's your sin today? Is it on you or on Jesus? Where do you want it to be? You want it to be on Jesus? And say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe you took my sin. I know I can't be my own savior. Where's your sin? And let me mention one other thing. If you're a follower of Christ, and many of you I know are, Jesus is your model in suffering. Let me put it this way. Jesus went through everything so that you can go through anything. First John, four, first John chapter 5, verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is that which has overcome the world, our faith. The next verse says, it explains exactly what that is. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world. Your faith must be in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. But Jesus is your model in suffering. He went through everything so that you can handle anything. I think about Simon of Cyrene. It looks like, we don't know, but that he and his family became disciples of Christ after that up-close-and-personal view of the crucifixion. What you need to do today is be alert to life-changing opportunities that come dressed up as obligations and persecutions and crosses. They were saying to Jesus, come down off the cross. That is absolutely opposed to Jesus' call of discipleship, which is, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. Lord God, we thank you that you are the one we can trust in. 
for salvation and in the midst of suffering. Lord, we, we thank you that in the crucifixion we see love, we see God, your heart, we see grace, our sovereign king, and your all-sufficiency as we see Jesus the Savior. May we never forget the price that was paid and the relationship with you that we can have because of it. May we remember that we have been crucified with Christ, that Christ lives in all those who believe, and that to live is Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.